It's Mike McEntee. Happy Tuesday to you. I don't think uh, I don't think the Nobel Prize Peace Peace Prize Committee should start chiseling Donald Trump's name on any uh, prizes yet. Uh, that meeting with North Korea that is supposed to happen. Uh, Trump says now it's a very substantial chance that it's not going to happen at least next month. Uh, He said the North is going to have to meet some conditions for the summit to go ahead, even though it did not. So it might happen, quote, later, whatever later means. Uh, The North has said it may cancel the summit if the U.S. insists on it giving up nuclear weapons unilaterally. Well, that was kind of the point, folks, walking into this, wasn't it? So um, (laughs) we'll see. We'll see. We, We hope for peace. We really do hope for peace in North Korea. But as we've seen you know, remember Donald Trump was a guy who said, who knew that this healthcare stuff was so complicated? Well, who knew that this diplomacy stuff was so complicated either, either going on? Uh, coming up here later on the show, Congress is messing with the law put in place after the financial industry set the U.S. into a great recession. Should you be worried about that? We're going to talk to an economic policy expert. And fallout from the legislative session, both policy and political, we're going to talk with Kevin Featherly of Minnesota Lawyer. But first, Congress failed to pass the Farm Bill last week and is scheduled to take another crack at it next month. The bill sets policy that impacts big farmers, excuse me, small farmers, as well as the big conglomerates that own more and more of the nation's farms, as well as the companies that sell and buy from the farmers. Our next guest says that big ag, as it's called, should be a concern to every American because if left unchecked, it could ultimately drive small farmers out of business and lead to higher food prices for everybody. But Congress just doesn't seem to care. Joining us now is Andrew Schwartz. He's an economic policy analyst who works with the Center for American Progress. Andrew, welcome to the program. Hey, Mike. How are you? Hey, pretty good. So when we'd say big ag, that sounds like, you know, uh, very imposing and, and, and evil. When we say big ag, what do we really mean? Who are we talking about there? So we're, we're referring to a couple different uh, entities. First, um, on the input side, uh, you've got uh, seed companies, pesticide companies, and we've seen some mergers uh, in the past few years, specifically uh, Dow and DuPont, uh, Sagenta, ChemChina, and Bayer and Monsanto. Um, and I think Monsanto in particular is one that's, uh, even if you're not too familiar with the agriculture industry, is a name you've probably heard. Um, but the, the merger of all of these companies into three entities is going to leave uh, the U.S., uh, corn seed markets, they're going to control 80% of that. Uh, they're also going to control 70% of the international pesticide market. So if you're a farmer, um, you're already getting squeezed uh, on the input side, and that's before um, you even have to deal with the low prices um, once you have a finished product. And then the other side of big ag is the small farmers that are being bought up. The, the We have more and more larger farms that are controlling uh our, our farmland, our pasture land, is that how, how big is big ag when it comes to that? So we're, we still see that mostly uh, small farmers are the are predominant, but we, we do see a, a definite increase um, in the number of, of large farmers, uh, particularly in uh, the dairy farms, as well as egg producers. Uh, about approximately from like 1987 to 2012, those uh, the typical farm has increased about about 10 times. And so, um, mm. you know, you're definitely seeing that having an impact on the small and medium sized farms. So we have bigger farms. We have bigger companies that are selling the smaller farmers their stuff. What what's the threat that we should be worried about here? 
So we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of impacts, and I think this is not unique to just um, agriculture, but uh, you know that has has a lot of uh, concerning economic trends. And if you know if we're um, a capitalistic uh, society, and you know one of the major things is competition, and ultimately uh, these consolidations are leading to less uh, less competition. So that's fewer new entrants uh, could mean less private investment. And on the worker side, uh, stagnant wages, and uh, these companies have sway over prices. So every year, Congress puts together, not every year, but every so often, Congress puts together a farm bill that's going to regulate not just the, you know, the farmers, but also has, you know, has to do with price supports, has to do with, uh, with what these companies, these larger companies are doing. In the past, there was you know, a lot of work that was done to try to make sure that things stay competitive. What has uh, Congress done about that recently? Are we moving towards trying to keep things competitive or what's going on? So that's a really, a really good point. Uh, they have taken uh, some some actions uh, recently under the Obama administration. They they had the fair uh, the farmer fair practices rules, which uh, is a sm- part of a small agency uh, called GIPSA, which is Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Act. And this goes all the way back to 1920s. So just to show how how long this has been a concern at the federal uh, level that that family farms, uh, you know, have have the appropriate amount of power uh, that they need and to ensure fair competition. Uh, this, uh, these uh, rules were put in place uh, after, uh, actually it was a, a John Oliver segment that um, actually led to Congress taking action because for, for quite some time, uh, members of Congress were uh, attaching legislation uh, to prevent the implementation of these these rules that would uh, essentially remove uh, some unfair uh, advantages and disadvantages like breaching allowing large companies to breach contracts and retaliate. Um, so those were finally implemented towards the end of the Obama administration, and one of the first actions that uh, current USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue uh, implemented with uh, under the Trump administration was just rescinding these rules completely. And so now we're just back to back to square one. So what is in the farm bill this time around? What's going to be dealing with this? Anything? Um, so in particular, so I think one, it's important to have some context that the farm bill is about 80% dealing with nutrition programs. And that's uh, most commonly um, the SNAP program. But there, there's a number of uh, price support programs. Uh, one concerning trend uh, people uh, have started to uh, agree on is the uh, poorly targeted crop insurance on, uh, that seems to be a driver in the, the farm consolidation that we talked about earlier. Uh, and so, you know, we're not we're not see- we're we're seeing a big problem, but we're not seeing um, Congress using this farm bill, which happens um, every five or so years as the main opportunity to set agriculture policy for uh, at the federal level, uh, we're not seeing Congress taking the opportunity to address these important issues. So why is Congress not acting in the best interest of small farmers and the consumers in this particular case? Why, why does it seem, I mean, it would seem like that's what you want to do. That's where the voters are. What's going on? Well, I think, you know, one thing we see both in um, in this sector and pretty much any sector, and that includes the that includes the tech sector or the communication sector, is essentially market power 
leads to political power. And so uh, we've seen the um, agricultural trade associations and we've seen interest groups, um, you know, they are, they have considerable influence and they're exerting that influence through uh, PAC donations, um, political spending and lobbying. And when it comes, when it comes time to redo this farm bill, um, you know, they are able to weigh in and kind of master the, the maze of politics and bureaucracy and uh, legal obstacles that um, the typical family farmer is, you know, not able to to uh, master because they're they're too busy farming. Now, I mentioned at the top of this that the uh, the Congress, mostly Republicans, tried to uh, pass this ag bill at uh, last week. It didn't pass. It's going to come up uh, again in next month. And the reasons connected to why it not passing had to do with immigration and a lot of other things. But is the bill that was going to be passed last this last week going to be very similar to the one that's going to be offered up next month? Is there any kind of pressure to make any changes in it? Well, I think that that kind of does remain to be seen. I think it's also worth paying attention to that. That was the House bill that failed. The Senate is also working on its own bill. And there does seem to be um, a far less partisan process. So you do see um, uh, Senator Roberts from Kansas and Senator Sabanow from Michigan, uh, the um, the Republican and the Democratic um, leaders of the committee um, are the ones who are, who are leading this process. And they definitely see the need to have a bipartisan process leading to a bipartisan bill that that um, members of both parties can um, can get on board with. And so I think I think the hope is that there will be some good things that come from that and that the House will have to take the, the Senate's lead and um, potentially, um, you know, have uh, more more things that are uh, focused on small and medium sized farmers, uh, as well as uh, something that doesn't have these uh, disastrous cuts to nutrition programs as well. Yeah, the farm bill is a lot more than just farm. It it uh, impacts, as we said, SNAP, what used to be called food stamps, uh, has a great impact on a lot of things. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Andrew Swartz is uh, an economic policy analyst with the Center for American Progress. Andrew, hey, thanks for filling us in on what's going on. We'll have to watch what happens next month in the House uh, with the farm bill. Definitely. Thanks, Mike. We're going to take a break here for a moment, but we'll stay on the topic of Congress, which is messing with the law that was put in place after the financial industry uh, kind of melted down uh, in 2008 and put us in a great big recession. Should you be worried that they're doing changes to that? We're going to talk to an economic policy expert about that. You're listening to The Mike McEntee Show on AM 950. It's home improvement season, and you know there's lots of projects to tackle. Here's one that won't break the budget. Get your air ducts cleaned by Zero Res. They need to be cleaned every three to five years to improve your furnace and your air quality. This month, save $50 when you get your air ducts Zero Resified. Plus, this month, get three rooms of carpet Zero Res clean, starting at $139. Call 952-ZERO-RES or visit ZeroResMN.com. Zero Res. Spell it backward or forward. Spells the same. 
Hi, it's Tom Hartman. You know, Continental Diamond is special for a lot of reasons. The owners are Jimmy and Helene Pessis, a husband and wife team who had a dream to open their own store more than 30 years ago. They built a business that is the gold standard. The readers of Minnesota Bride Magazine have named Continental Diamond the best jeweler for the last seven years. Why? Amazing, friendly, no-pressure customer service, a selection of fine diamonds and design jewelry unlike anywhere else, and the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies are pretty great, too. Continental Diamond in St. Louis Park and at ContinentalDiamond.com. What kind of a jackass would let an animal pick their insurance? Did you really think a lizard could save you money on car insurance? Would you let a duck pick your health policy? Insurance can be a zoo, but this is ridiculous. What you really need is an insurance agent that isn't looking out for the insurance companies. You need Cheryl at Array, an independent agent with 30 years experience looking for the best rate possible. Quit monkeying around and call 763-504-3067. That's 763-504-3067 for Cheryl at Array, representing you, not the insurance companies companies. It's a great day for a bike ride. What's that? You can't find your bike? Oh, it has a flat. No problem. Take it to Nokomis Cycle, the hardest working bike shop in town. They're celebrating their 23rd year in business. In that time, they've mastered the art of friendly, dependable service. So keep life and your bike moving with Nokomis Cycle, working harder to make you go faster. Nokomis Cycle at the corner of 46th and Bloomington Avenue South in Minneapolis or at NokomisCycle.com. Hey, welcome back to the Mike McIntyre Show here on AM 950. Remember the law Congress passed after the financial meltdown of 2008? Dodd-Frank, as it is known, uh, imposed regulations on the financial industry to prevent it from happening again. Now, President Donald Trump has been very vocal about this. He wants the he wants Congress to do, quote, a big number on the law and weaken it. Congress is in the process of revising that law. And there are some changes you and I should probably be very concerned about. Uh, joining us now, I believe, is Greg Gelzinis, a research associate for the Economic Policy at the Center for American Progress. Greg, are you there? Maybe he's not there. Okay. Um, okay. Well, we're going to be talking to Greg a little bit later on in the program. Um, so I wanted to talk about some of the other thing that's going on here. Today we've had uh, the uh, protest. Protests have been uh, breaking out in Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, those demanding an end to deportations and other anti-immigration policies shut down the blue line light rail this morning by sitting on the tracks uh, near the Immigration and Custom Enforcement Facility, that's ICE, by Fort Snelling. About 130 people were involved. 18 people were arrested. Four of those arrested were ministers, three of them from Unitarian congregations. Uh, one of the co-ministers at the Unity Church at the Unity Church Unitarian St. Paul, Rob Eller Isaacs, said the protest objective was to quote draw attention to the immoral activities of ICE, that is again the U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement Agency, and the bankrupt immigration policies of the United States. The deportation, he says, are breaking up families. Now this is the second of many planned actions by the Poor People's Campaign. They were joined by the Minnesota Immigration Rights Action Committee, MIRAC, and all those who were arrested were taken to the Hennepin County Jail and released by noon. And that's because we have a law here in Minnesota that, that sets what the penalty for that is, and it's not a felony. Um, it, or if the law the Republicans proposed during the just-proposed legislative session had passed, 
the folks that were arrested would have been facing much more serious charges. Governor Dayton vetoed that bill because it was too vague. Now, I understand we do have Greg on the line. Uh, Greg, uh, Greg Galzinis is a research associate for the Center for American Progress. He uh, works on economic policy. Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Hey, great to have you here. Uh, we are talking about uh, Dodd-Frank, the law that regulates how the banks and f- other financial industries should behave uh, after everything melted down in 2008. Uh, this uh, this law is up for uh, revision. Uh, there's some sort of bipartisan support for making some of the changes on this. It's uh, Though I'm here, it's going to exempt more banks from regulation. Uh, how many? Is that something we should be concerned about? Yeah, you know, I wish I was joining your show with better news, but the House is about to pass a bill that passed the Senate back uh, back in March. The centerpiece of this bill would deregulate 25 of the largest 38 banks in the United States. Collectively, those banks represent one sixth of the banking sector. So we're not talking about a small slice of the banking sector that'll be deregulated uh, by this bill. And and get this, those specific banks took about $47 billion in TARP bailout funds during the last financial crisis. So basically 10 years since the financial crisis, we are now going to loosen rules on banks that we bailed out uh, in large numbers. So what's behind this? Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren said uh, this is a bill to the uh, this bill is a gift to bank lobbyists. Is that his, what's going on here? The bank lobbyists have uh, infiltrated Congress, spent lots of money, and we're going to change the laws because of it? Unfortunately, there's no logical substantive argument, so, so we have to turn to that argument. I mean, just today, the FDIC, a banking regulator, released their quarterly banking profile on all of the profits in the banking sector for the first quarter of 2018, and those profits smashed through previous records. Those banks took about or made about $56 billion uh, in profits. Now, part of that increase was uh, due to the tax cut bill that really benefited banks. Uh, but even without the tax cut uh, improvements uh, for those banks, their profits still would have uh, broken the previous record. So there's no argument to be made, no substantive argument to be made that Dodd-Frank is crushing uh, banks You know, under the burden of regulation. That's what we hear a lot from uh, the industry pushing for for these changes. Dodd-Frank simply has made these banks more resilient in the faces of, of future financial shocks and future economic downturns. Uh, and banks do not like that they can't take uh, the same level of risk that they took in, in the lead up to the financial crisis that got us into so much trouble. Now, in 2009, 2010, even 2011, I spent a lot of time covering people who lost their homes, who were uh, fighting for, essentially fighting for their financial lives because of what happened here. And it was yeah. all because of subprime mortgages that uh, triggered this whole thing. This is this is banks, banks basically lending money to people who probably can't afford to pay it back and then essentially betting that if they aren't able to do so, they make money anyhow. So... Does this open us up to any of those type of practices again? Is this something we should be worried about here? So there are really two, I think, uh, reasons that we had such a, a disastrous financial crisis. One were, were the risky practices and activities that you talked about. But two, when those risks you know, in the economy uh, blew up, the banking sector was not resilient. Banks didn't have enough loss-absorbing capital, uh, you know, we call it, to, to take on losses without failing. Uh, banks didn't, weren't stress-tested, so they didn't have the systems in place to know how their banks would be affected by 
by a large economic downturn. Regulators didn't have what are called living wills to know how to wind down banks without resorting to bailouts. So this bill really targets primarily those uh, those regulations that increase the resiliency of the banking sector. So if banks do, you know, get in trouble building up risk in the financial sector through things like subprime loans or commercial real estate loans to risky ventures, you know, now if we roll back these rules, they won't necessarily have the resiliency or the capability to to handle those losses without failing or without sparking another financial crisis. You mentioned a couple areas, obviously subprime loans that are risky for banks. Are there it seems like somebody always invents something. I mean, we had derivatives and all sorts of things. Somebody always invents something that's risky because people want to make more than two or three percent and the stock market, they don't want that. So somebody comes, is there, are the banks getting into things more that are risky that we should be concerned about? There are certainly products that, you know, are, are, Building up that I, you know, I myself am getting getting concerned about. One is called the collateralized loan obligation. Uh, you you might recognize some of those words from the financial crisis. You know, where yes. collateralized debt obligation CDOs uh, that were packed with the subprime mortgages. Uh, so similar products like that under different names, but the same general concepts uh, are are developing in the system, and that's why we think it's so important that banks. Uh, you know, have the resiliency. So if those risks do blow up and do go bad, then we don't have massive bank failures that we don't have to resort uh, to bailouts. But one thing I'd add to that point is we're also seeing significant deregulation coming out of the Trump appointed financial regulators using their own discretion. So beyond what Congress is doing, the regulators are already rolling back some rules, one of them being the Volcker rule that tries to keep banks out of a lot of those risky products that you, you had mentioned. Um, and so we're, we're seeing a proposal that that'll be out by the end of end of the month that'll, you know, drive massive holes through that bill. So at the same time, we're reducing the resiliency of these banks. We're also going to introduce some of those risky products back into them as well. It's a dangerous combination. Yeah, it sure sounds like a recipe for a disaster. Uh, I was looking at the description of the bill here, and there are some there are some things in here I think though that people might be happy about. There's some things happening with student loans and credit reports that are are, are better for the consumer. Uh, can you fill us in on those? Sure. So you know there are some provisions like a you know a free credit freeze, for example. But we view those provisions really as crumbs, kind of fig leaves, compared to the large uh, rollbacks that that are really handouts to you know, highly profitable big banks. There, you know, there's nothing uh, in the bill that significantly addresses the rising problem of student debt with, you know, student debt outstanding well over a trillion dollars now. There's nothing in the bill that substantively deals with the Equifax or Wells Fargo scandals. These are all just kind of minor tapering over uh, of those scandals, uh, unfortunately. And because right now, if you have a student loan, you can't default on it. You can't get rid of it. You can't get yep. rid of it even if you go bankrupt. Heck, you can't get rid of it even if you die, I believe, because your right. your heirs are still responsible for it. I think one of the provisions in this is saying, well, if you die, well, your 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 spouse doesn't have to pay this off. I mean, thank you. I guess that's a, that's a nice thing. But that seems, <laughs> again, like you said, that's really minor compared to what the real problem is here, which is, you know, people getting piled up with debt, trying to go to, you know, 
this is this is almost in a different area I'm talking about here, but with education, the way that uh, uh, we have set things up that you have to mortgage your entire future if you want to go to college, you essentially are taking on a mortgage that you don't you don't get you don't get a house with this mortgage. You just have to carry it around with you for the rest of your life because it costs that much. And that is, I mean, that's obviously beyond the the purview yeah. of this bill. But that's, that's sort of where we we need to be tackling this. I think. No, absolutely. The student loan debt will you know is and will continue to be one of the defining financial issues. Uh, of our time, and certainly for for my generation, the generation uh, above me, uh, and it shows you a lot that you know we're not tackling that problem. It shows you the agenda of uh, the GOP-controlled Congress and the executive branch. That what are what are we going to try to accomplish? One, we're going to try to uh, get tax cuts through for the wealthy and corporations. Two, we're going to you know try to attack your health care, which they may you know again try to do this coming August. And three, we're going to help big banks by rolling back rules and making a financial crisis and taxpayer bailout more likely. That's that's the GOP uh, agenda for economic policy, whereas I think Democrats uh, would certainly say that, you know, one of the top priorities uh, should be addressing the student loan crisis. We're speaking with Greg Gelzenis. He is a research associate for the uh, Center for American Progress. Uh, he works focuses on economic policy. You said, now, what happened today? Just recap what happened today on this, because uh, this there are two bills pending, and there was action today in the House, wasn't there? Yeah, certainly. So the, I think the, you know, look at my watch, the bill is, we're expecting a vote. They're either voting on it right this second or or imminently, uh, and that's passing the Senate passed bill. So as soon as the House votes, and, and we expect passage, because again, in the House, we don't, they don't need a single Democratic uh, vote to pass it. Uh, it'll go right to Trump's desk uh, to be signed into law. All right. There we have it. Up to the minute report on that. Hey, Greg, thank you so much for joining us today to explain what's going on here. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Good to have you. We're going to take a break here, folks. Uh, but when we get back, we're going to get back into what happened at the legislative session this weekend. We're still kind of sorting it out. And then there's all sorts of pressure on the governor to sign or not sign the bills that have been sent his way. We'll talk about what's going on there with Kevin Featherly of Minnesota Lawyer. That's next here on the Mike McEntee Show. Are you looking for the smarter way to buy and sell homes? Check out housegeeks.com. The housegeeks with Bricks Real Estate have the experience, tools, and technology to get you the best value. At housegeeks.com, you will be able to download their free home search app, easily set up appointments, or request your free home and neighborhood market assessment. Remember, the housegeeks, the smarter way to buy and sell homes. Hi, this is Paul Metz inviting you to listen to the Wall of Power Radio Hour every weekend on AM 950. We are now in our third year of broadcasting on the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Min Post has called us one of the 22 most independently entertaining and cool radio shows in the Twin Cities. We feature cool people from all walks of life and from all 50 states. Every Saturday at 6 p.m., replayed Sunday at 4 p.m. on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Are you trying to live stream on Facebook, on YouTube, tired of no one watching your videos? Well, whether you're a beginner or a veteran, you can have better results. Hi, it's Mike McEntee with The Uptake. We're famous for our live streaming of thousands of events that are watched by millions. 
I want to help you live stream video like a pro for your cause, your group, or your company. I'm teaching a class on June 9th where you'll learn how to use your phone or professional camera to deliver the best live experience for your audience. I'll teach you how to attract an audience and how to keep reaching that audience when you're no longer live. Find out what platform works best for what you're trying to do. Sign up now at theuptake.org slash classes. Space is limited. Go to theuptake.org slash classes to sign up for this June 9th class. There's a $70 charge, but there's a discount for students and low-income people. That's theuptake.org slash classes to learn how to live stream like a pro. Tom Hartman here telling you that solar energy isn't just for environmentalists. Switching to all-energy solar is actually perfect for reducing your carbon footprint while also saving money on your monthly electric bill. The fact that solar panels cause no earth-harming emissions while it's producing energy is a bonus. Who in the world could object to that? But they can also help you save money month after month for decades. And they do it with a clean footprint. So go green and start saving money today by visiting allenergysolar.com. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Haas. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 61. Wednesday, partly sunny with a high near 82. And Thursday, partly sunny with a high near 91. This week's EatLocalMinnesota.com restaurant of the week is The Bad Waitress. The Bad Waitress at 700 Central in Northeast Minneapolis is a bit more grown up than its sister on Nicollet. The Bad Waitress buys organic and local. These relationships create a philosophy of food ethics and morality while supporting other area businesses to create a network of sustainability and vitality. It's Mike McAdoo back here on AM 950. The clock is ticking for Governor Mark Dayton to decide what to do with the bills the legislature passed this weekend as they adjourn for the year. Dayton has indicated he will likely veto the major bills that Republicans assembled in the waning hours of this year's session. Joining me to talk about the session and what's happened since is Kevin Featherly of Minnesota Lawyer. That's at minlawyer.com. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. Did you get some sleep? I did last night. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I, I don't. I stayed up for the retirement speeches, so I was up till 3 a.m., but it was uh, even so. Uh, it was quite a long session over the weekend, uh, a lot of people putting in a lot of extra hours. Uh, what the heck happened? I mean, it, I mean, I looked at that and saw we had, uh, it seemed like it was much more organized at the end than it was the last previous two times, but still a lot of stuff uh, is going to end up undone, I think, ultimately here. Well, uh, it, it has been called a train wreck. And uh, it's hard to say because, you know, I talked to uh, Dayton certainly promised, it seemed to me, that he is planning to veto the supplemental budget bill. But I talked to a relatively senior uh, DFL senator today, whom I won't name, Mm -hmm. not in leadership, but been around a while, who thinks there's about a 60% chance that Dayton's actually going to sign it. And why does he think that Dayton might sign this thing? Because he said all along there's too many things in it he objects to. Well, because the opposite is also true. There are a lot of things that he wants. Hmm. And in the end, uh, according to this particular source, uh, the the governor may change his mind. Now, I'm not certain of that because I I saw the governor. I was with him in the room when he said that he really has no intention to sign these things. And I certainly believed him in the moment. What's in there that he wants, and what's in there that he doesn't want? Um, well, what's in there is 
geez, there's a lot of stuff in there. He mostly <laughs> no. talks about what he doesn't want. Yeah, there's you know, a thousand-page bill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where do you start? It's it, When uh, Tom Bach held that thing up, uh, Tom Bach's a pretty big fella and I think uh, pretty strong, and he seemed to strain himself <laughs> to lift that thing above his head. A thousand-page bill. Um, some of the things that I know the governor is upset about in the bill is the way it deals with the opioid crisis. He had wanted fees to be assessed against the pharmaceutical and, and distributors in the, pharmace- or in the pharmaceutical industry, and the Senate sided with him on that pretty vigorously. There were some pretty passionate speeches on the Senate floor, and a bill passed by a wide margin in the Senate to do that. But when it got to conference committee, there was a lot of resistance in the House. I talked to Senator Newman, who's on that conference committee, the Supplemental Budget Conference, and asked him what had happened because there was a big holdup. It took a long time to get the human services articles even heard. It was very late on Friday night. And it turned out that the sticking point seemed to be the opioids. And I asked Senator Newman what happened, and his quote to me was, my understanding is that the House, for whatever reason that I don't know, was really dug in. They didn't like the notion of the pharmaceutical firms and distributors contributing to solving the opioid crisis. Hmm. So there's that. Um, There's a... there's just so much stuff. I mean, you, you almost have to ask me about a specific. <laughs> so many things in that gigantic well, bill. Well, let's uh, let's let's jump a, a couple things. I know that Dayton wanted standalones for which one was the opioid prevention bill. Uh, the other right. one was uh, school safety. Where did right? That's, that's and there is school safety money distributed in the three bills. Two of which he yeah. says he's not going to sign. One of which I think Melissa Hortman indicated he would, but I don't think that he's personally made that pledge, and that's on bonding. But mm-hmm. there's money throughout the, the uh, bonding bill uh, through, I think, $25 million in grants out of the general fund to school safety. And there's, there's money in the, I think, $25 million also in the supplemental budget bill. Um, I'm not sure how much is in uh, the third, but there's money distributed across all of them. And, and to get all that money, you'd have to sign all those bills. Hmm. Um, so, but it's, yeah. it seems unlikely, you know, that he's going to do that. So there was we're, um, that. we're not sure if we're going to get all that money. Speaking of schools, there was also the school emergency aid that Governor Dayton wanted. It was uh, uh, several hundred million dollars that he wanted, and Republicans came 137 back. $137 hey, million is what he requested. He said that was $126 per student. Yeah, and Republicans came back and said, well, hey, we'll do you one better. We'll give you a couple hundred million. But the way the Republicans did it is they pulled it from some other programs. I heard teachers saying, no way, you're not going to take away our uh, professional development money, the, the money that we need to keep taking classes so we can keep our licenses, so we can keep our jobs, just so you don't lay us off. I mean, that's, that's uh, what the complaint was here. Now, the Republicans have given him a choice between signing that or you know, having people laid off. Uh, where's the governor going to go on this? Um, I don't think he's going to go along with the, the idea. I mean, th- what they're doing is they're calling it $250 million in school aids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dayton has identified only $50 million of that as new money. The rest of it's coming from shifts, you know, like you said, within existing school budgets that pay for things like community education and, and teacher training. And, and no, I mean, they don't, I don't think they're going to want to dip into those two pots. It's, it's not really, by his lights at least, it's not new money. He needs, as he put it, emergency school aids because he's saying that there are 59 Minnesota school districts facing budget shortfalls. 
And there could be hundreds of teachers being laid off and programs eliminated unless something's done about that. So I think he's going to stand firm on that. Um, but then again, you know, there's so much, it's such a gigantic bill. There's so much in there and so many, not only the governor, but things that his allies are going to want. There's going to be a lot of pressure from either way to either sign it or veto it, I would say. Yeah, the Republican rhetoric I heard listening to a few of the debates on this was, well, those school districts that are having the problems, they just didn't manage their budgets well, and that's why they're having the problems. And I talked to the educators, and they say, no, 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 that's not the thing. It's it's special education that's been sucking all the money out of what we're doing, and the federal government and the uh, the state have not appropriated enough money to, to fund any of these things here. Uh, so it, it seems to me like I'm... I'm it's a, it's a question of how uh, Republicans are going to try to spin this for the voters. It sounds like the money's not going to be there, and they're going to have to explain why schools are shutting down, or not shutting down, but are are uh, laying off teachers. And some of those are going to be in outstate districts where the Republicans ha- are hoping to win again. I've heard many of the same things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another one of those standalones that uh, Governor Dayton wanted was as a result of the uh, the great investigative series that the Star Tribune did on uh, on elder abuse, and they wanted elder care reforms. Uh, where, where did that end up? Did that end in the bill, out of the bill? It didn't end up in a separate bill, did it? No, I don't. I, I've been looking around to see if it had, and I've, I've not found a separate bill for that. It was pretty much wrapped up in this gigantic um they're calling it Omnibus Prime, this giant 989-page supplemental budget bill, which doesn't even involve that much money. I think it's uh, I think it's either right around or a little bit less than $100 million, so it's not nearly as big financially as the two-year biennial budget that they passed last year. But it's just a massive document, and there's all kinds of these sorts of policies that are, are, are jammed in there. Let's, let's talk one. just for a minute about why that is. Why did we end up with a nearly 1,000-page bill with all of this stuff jammed in there as opposed to you know, doing separate bills and passing them? But, I mean, I think I understand, but why don't you explain to the folks listening why, why that ended up like that in the process? I've been asking people that all week. Mm-hmm. And I, it's really, the, I mean, the cynic in me, and, and I think the cynic in some of the people I'm talking to, is that if you put it, I mean, it's sort of what the Constitution was sort of worried about when it included the single subject clause. It's called log rolling. If you jam all kinds of, of provisions in a big bill, then people have to accept it, uh, the stuff that they hate, in order to get the stuff they like. And, and this is just a really exaggerated version of it. It's not unlike what happened in 2016 when they, they took several supplemental bills and combine them, and, and they did the same thing. It was also a, a larger, but not this big. It was a larger bill. So this is not new. And that was a DFL uh, Senate um, finance chair at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a uh, thing that one party's doing and, and the other's not. Um, it, it just it, it gives people leverage, I guess, to get... But in this case, Dayton's likely to veto the whole thing, so none of the stuff will get passed. And we're talking, I don't know, John Marty estimated 60 to 65% of all the legislation included in this year, what would be this year's session laws at the end of the year, is in this one bill. Mm-hmm. And why are they doing it? I, I'm honestly still trying to figure that out for myself. Uh, I, mean, I think leverage is a lot of it. Um, yep. It's sort of an insane way to govern, though. And the question is whether this is sustainable, you know, because 
if you go all or nothing, you, you come to a point where, you know, maybe everything's going to get rejected. You also come to a, a place potentially as, yeah, this is John Marty's nightmare scenario, mm-hmm. where we end up with a, a session where there's one big bill one presented bill. to the governor, <laughs> take it or leave it. A, gil, a bill having to do with government. And, yeah, or is, that's that's it. Anything that's what the auto court said in the, in the Supreme Court case in auto. They said that state government operations, the term state government operations, is not too broad to qualify as a single subject under the Constitution. Well, that could be one big bill, including everything, because everything in in legislation falls under the rubric of state government operations. Well, wasn't there a constitutional amendment floating around? I think that was going to break up some of this, saying you can't put policy in a financial bill or something like that. Did that did that go anywhere this year? Uh, no, but you're right. Uh, there was talk about it before the session even started. There were a couple of um, panels where lawmaker leadership was talking a little bit about that. Nothing really came of it, at least nothing that I knew of, until the very end of the session. At that point, Mike Freiberg, a representative, a DFL representative, put a bill down to uh, not, you know, abolish the single subject clause, but to add clarifying language to so to direct courts on how to enforce it. He had a pretty interesting crew of um, co-signers. He had Steve Drzkowski. Excuse me, is it Drzkowski? Drzkowski. Drzkowski. Yeah. Draz, yeah, Drazkowski, he's yeah. on it. The Cal Bar's on it. So you got some pretty conservative Republicans. Pat Garofalo, a couple more Democrats. Um, this would be what it would do the way Freiburg has it now. Uh, and, of course, this was presented at the very end, well after deadline. It never got a hearing, but it got a little bit of a conversation started and, and might result in something more next year. It would, um, as he as he positioned it, it would basically bar any inclusion of policy in finance bills. Hmm. Now, that could, or, that could result in its own problem, as his co-author, Joskowski, told me, because then you could wind up with a gigantic policy-only mega bill. And then nothing to pay for it. <laughs> and, and also no way for the governor to even line-item veto anything out of it, because he can only line-item veto appropriations. Now, so it would be untouchable an- unless he got rid of all of it. There was another constitutional amendment uh, that was talked about a lot in the last couple of weeks, which was the uh, let's divert some of the sales tax revenue that ostensibly uh, is being paid to fix cars, you know, on, on auto repairs and stuff, and dedicate it towards roads. But uh, a lot of people were upset with that because that's taking money from the general fund that is used for education and other things and putting it over in another place and not replacing it in the general fund. Did What happened to that amendment? It, I it didn't need Governor Dayton's signature. Did it get through the House and Senate or not? It got through the House and seemed to have real momentum. That was Torkelson's bill, excuse me, uh, uh, Representative Paul Torkelson. And it passed the House 76-54. And uh, then it got referred to Senate to the Taxes Committee and seems to have died there. No mm-hmm. action beyond that. So it never got to the, never got through the Senate. Yeah, because that was going to be, I thought, one of the big campaign things. The Republicans are going to be able to go out and say, hey, you know, we're, let's get people ginned up, just like uh, they were counting on. It didn't happen, but they were counting on uh, the constitutional amendment on the marriage amendment and uh, the the, the uh, voter ID amendment you know, several cycles ago. They're, they're counting on that getting the vote out. And I thought that would be their, their strategy this time around. I'm just uh, surprised that they let it uh, fail so, you know, so quietly. 
Well, yeah, I, there, one of the things I heard is that Republicans might be a little gun shy about constitutional amendments because they don't yeah. always turn out the way they they hope. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that boomeranged on them quite badly. By the way, anybody who paid Indeed, attention. True. There was also talk of a constitutional amendment to allow the governor to choose his own lieutenant governor, so that we don't wind up in the kind of mess we had there, all playing out throughout the session, and nothing came of that either. And that kind of became a non-issue as the session yeah. went on. I know uh, that there's a case on that that still we're still waiting for it to go uh, before the judge. That's uh, June fifth, I believe. It, it June, is going to be heard, and there is a motion so, for both dismissal and for summary judgment. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, right now, it's it's kind of a moot point, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, the session's over. Uh, unless uh, I guess the only thing is that you could judge, hey, that that wasn't good, and she can't be lieutenant governor. And if something happens to Dayton, well, you know, then we can have then we then we have a constitutional crisis. I don't know. That's that's the only thing I can see out of that. But that's like a bunch of ifs, and I don't think right. Uh, and also anything. One thing that Judge Guthman signaled, and I think he's right, is that. The case wouldn't become ripe until law is enacted. It's not enough that it's passed the legislature. It's also going to be signed into law by the governor. That's an enactment. And that, there are several, obviously, really big pieces of legislation that, that where that uh, matters. One of the things that uh, I thought was interesting, just as a sort of trivia bit, is that um, the in the motion for uh, summary judgment, I think, Dusaski is the plaintiff. She, know, she knows that um, even in cases where... It's like a three-vote spread, 34-31, that the lieutenant governor's vote is still decisive, even though it's not a one-vote majority. It wasn't a 34-33, because you have to have that 34th vote. You have to have that majority 34th vote to pass anything. So mm-hmm. she's making the claim that there is still that damage done because she cast decisive votes, even where it wasn't a one-vote majority. And since it has to be when the law is enacted, when Dayton has signed off on it, might that... Uh put some pressure on Governor Dayton to make some action here before June 5th when this case is heard, or is he probably just really doesn't it. care about it? I really it. do. Yeah. I mean, he's got two weeks, and I think that elapses, if I'm not mistaken, um, on June 1st, and the thing is June 5th. There, I mean, the, the way that works is there's sort of a there's sort of a window. It's either it, anywhere from 11 days to 17 days, depending on when the revisor's office actually presents the bill to the governor. Ah. They have three days to present and so he could have anywhere from 17, 11 to 17 days. Um, and I think in either case, it would still be the time where they elapsed before that hearing. Yeah. So I don't think so, really any pressure there. So, so the, this, the 2018 session to me was more about the 2018 election than it was about anything else. And so what do you think is going to be the political fallout of this session? I mean, who are the winners and the losers? Any, you know, you're sitting there, you've seen a lot of elections. What do you, how do you think this is going to play? I'm not sure because who won, you know, <laughs> who, who, the, I mean, the way the Kurt Dowd seems to, you know, he was, he came out actually quite triumphant at the end of the session because they delivered on every promise. You know, they passed everything they said they were going to pass. And now it's up to the governor. And so I think what they're going to go to their voters to say is, well, look, we passed all this stuff. We we had money for opioids. We had, you know, elder abuse. We took care of business. And he's saying no. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Democrats can say, well, look, these guys had this tax bill and they wanted to, uh, they they refused to tax repatriated profits. That's two hundred million dollars. They were they wanted to cut taxes on the wealthy. Um, nothing for the middle class, you know, they're all about the wealthy. And you take a look at what they did with uh, refusing to do the penny a pill 
fee on pharmaceuticals, this whole session was nothing but a sellout to the special interests. Well, I think that what that really means is it's kind of, it's kind of a wash for the base. Mm-hmm. And what are the people in the middle who are watching this and wondering what to think? Where is their vote going to go? You tell me. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of political winds blowing here, and none of them, uh, I think, are the decisive ones. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in, come November, and including what happens in August here, depending on who shows up for the primary. Uh, right. We've been speaking with Kevin Featherly, a Minnesota lawyer. You can find his writing over at minnesotalawyer.com. Kevin, we got to run, but I appreciate you filling us in. Uh, I'm glad you got some sleep, and uh, uh, hopefully we, we know we know we're not going to have a special session, so uh, you can you can get back to covering all that other stuff you do. Are you sure? Are you 100% sure? No special session? <laughs> okay. I'm I not mean, if you know anything, you've got to let me know, man. <laughs> I'm only going by what the governor said, so I'll, I'll take him at his <laughs> he word said for no the moment. Spe- he said no special session unless he saw, I think, knee-deep snow in January in July in St. Paul. In July. So we'll have to see if it snows in July. If that's the case, we'll get out the shovels and we'll head down to the legislature for the special session. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, Kevin, thanks very much. Thank you. We're going to take a break here, folks, but when we get back, notes from the campaign trail on uh, some of the stuff going on with the governor's races and a few other notes. We'll be back here in a few minutes. You're listening to the Mike McEntee Show on AM 950. The number one source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities Gay Scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. Crazy about pets? We are too. The Pet Connection Show is a great venue for fun, informative, and creative conversations about pets. Join myself, Kathy Menard, and Dr. Nicole Parole, along with guests who are leaders in the dynamic and growing pet industry, as we discuss healthcare, relationships, behaviors, and even political issues as they relate to our pets. So come, sit, stay for the Pet Connection Show, Sundays 11 a.m. to noon on AM 950 Radio, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Lowry Hill Meats, your neighborhood full-service butcher shop that works directly with family farms. Using whole animals gives Lowry Hill Meats the benefit of preparing custom cuts and dry aging. They offer beef, lamb, goat, pork, and poultry, including whole duck, roasting hens, turkey, quail, pheasant, and Cornish hens. Their sausages are made fresh in-house weekly using 40 rotating recipes. Try their handcrafted sandwiches. They are second to none. Lowry Hill Meats is located at 1934 Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis or online at LowryHillMeats.com. Who's your most trusted companion? Who's with you 24-7? What do you never leave home without? Your phone. But the screen is shattered. Don't panic. Bring it to Computer Revolution with cell phone repair. We have over 18 years' experience fixing computer devices, all brands, all carriers. We'll replace that screen and have it back same day. Computer Revolution with cell phone repair in Roseville at Highway 36 in Fairview. Or call 651-633-6600. We fix phones. Same day, seven days a week. (laughs) 
It's Mike McEntee back here on AM 950. The DFL gets together to endorse or maybe not endorse a candidate for governor here in just a couple of weeks. The convention starts June 1st of Friday. By the way, we're going to be live streaming that, I think, over at theuptake.org. You'll want to watch and see what happens. But uh, some endorsements today. Uh, ask me. Uh, the ask, ask me. The folks here who represent a lot of the uh, state employees have endorsed Aaron Murphy uh, for governor. Uh, Rebecca Otto is picking up the endorsement of Gold Star Father uh, Kirzir Khan. You remember he's the guy who gave that speech in the Democratic National Convention, pulled the Constitution from his pocket, and challenged, challenged Donald Trump to read it. Uh, He's endorsed Rebecca Otto for governor. Stuart Mills, remember him? He ran for uh, 8th Congressional District and decided he wasn't going to go this time. Uh, he is busy complaining about the endorsement process uh, in the Republican Party. He uh, put out an ad, believe it or not, a video uh, ripping the Republican Party, talking about uh, his experience when he went to be endorsed at the Republican convention. This, this is just a, a small segment of it. There's some music, so you have to listen to him in the middle of the music. It is difficult to use words to express the totality of the animosity, rumor-mongering, bullying, and put-downs that were pervasive. There were overly excited grassroots activists who were blinded by the sole focus of their candidate winning the endorsement on one end of the spectrum, and there were paid political operatives that had all but promised their candidate the endorsement engaging in what I can only describe as junior high smear tactics on the other end of the spectrum. There were plenty of folks in the middle who were honestly there to support their chosen candidate, but they were dwarfed by the words and deeds of the agitators paid or otherwise. Yeah, that's uh, Stuart Mills calling the Republican Party a bunch of junior high school junior smear tactics being used at the Republican convention. He also says it's not unique to Republicans. He says the Democrats do the same thing. They uh, points to the 8th Congressional District Convention and says that people are trying to play kingmaker there. Hey, one last note, a little sad, I want to pass along. David Weinlich has died. You may have known him as the guy who got married at the Mall of America to a woman he'd met only an hour earlier. And he did so after his buddies picked her out. They stayed married until death do they part. But now, uh, but others who knew David uh, say that he's a fighter for the DFL party. He was the fourth congressional district party chair for a time. He was also the party affairs director into 2014. Uh, the DFL says that he was a dedicated DFLer, a colorful personality, empathetic heart, encyclopedic knowledge of the party history and process. He was diagnosed with colon cancer about a year ago and arranged to remarry his bride, uh, Bethany, at the Mall of America last August. His 48 leaves behind four children. Memorial arrangements are pending. We're going to miss you, David. Hey, I'm back here tomorrow. Mike McEntee. We'll see you then.